I'm not a World War I flying ace, Joe Cool, world-famous attorney, or even a neighborhood barber or a mediocre drummer. I'm just a schnook. Hi everyone, this is Sean the Schnook of Autobiography of a Schnook. Welcome to Chapter 24 and thank you all for listening. So it's yet another summer month, yet another month during this uh, pandemic. Still feel pretty good except for uh, a lot of insect bites that I got when uh, my wife and I were on vacation. Uh, we we were supposed to go to San Diego, but because of uh, the pandemic and travel restrictions and things, we canceled our San Diego trip and just drove to uh, New Buffalo, Michigan. It's about an 80-minute drive. It's not far. And we just chilled out there, and Lisa was taking a ukulele class at the Old Town School of Folk Music, and of course, because of the pandemic, all their classes are online, at least for the time being. And she figured, well, since it's online, I don't have to miss class, so she brought her uke with her. And the night of her class, just so I'd be out of her way, I stepped outside and spent that time outside so I wouldn't bother her. And then when I got in, I realized that all over my body, from the waist down, the insects just went to town on me. They chewed me up so badly. And for the next week, I was itching like crazy. It was torture. And that's really the worst that happened. And if that's the worst that happened to me, then, you know, I'm pretty lucky. I'm pretty lucky and I'm pretty thankful for that. And I realized that there are a couple of things I need to kind of update, or at least one thing I need to update. Remember a few episodes back, if you're a regular listener, I talked about the improv scene in Chicago. Well, about a month or so ago, Chicago lost one of its big improv comedy places, and that's uh, I.O., formerly Improv Olympic. I think the I.O. in Los Angeles is still around, but... Uh, the I.O. in Chicago closed down, and, uh, well, for a lot of people who are involved in the scene, uh, they are not really all that disappointed. Uh, I don't want to speak for all them, but apparently there were some major issues they had with uh, somebody who worked there, and in fact, it's not it, it was nothing new. Uh, I know somebody who worked at I.O. back in the 90s, and uh, this person that I know, this acquaintance of mine, said that if it hadn't been for this person, Chris Farley would still be alive. Um, I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I have a feeling that with or without this person, uh, Chris Farley, unfortunately, would have uh, gotten into his destructive habits. Uh, one thing I am worried about, though, is TJ and Dave. They were part of I.O. And uh, some people I know say that there isn't a single comedy place in Chicago that's innocent of controversy, mostly sexual harassment. That was uh, really a big problem and might still be, uh, which is a shame, <sighs> but TJ and Dave, as far as I know, everybody tells me, yeah, they're, don't worry about them. They're, they're innocent, but I really do hope they have a place to uh, perform before too long. They were seriously the best show in Chicago by far, not to put anybody else down. Cause there is some really good improv comedy in Chicago, but TJ and Dave were amazing. Probably still are. So, yeah, that's something that needed to be changed, because almost immediately after I released that episode, I.O. folded. So, oh boy, I don't know what else to say about that, but um, I do know this. I have a pretty full episode coming up right now, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. All I'm going to do now before we get into anything further is uh, 
give you the contact information for Autobiography of a Schnook. The email address is autobio at schnookpodcast.com. I put the show notes in the online bibliography, as I call it, at schnookpodcast.com, and you can follow me on Twitter. The handle on both Twitter and Instagram, Instagram I hardly ever use, to be honest, but uh, if you want to follow me there, it's Schnook Podcast, and I have a presence on Facebook, and I'm still trying to figure out the MeWe social media platform. A lot of people who complain about Facebook and all that, uh, people, there's also MeWe, which uh, has a much better uh, respect for privacy, (laughs) but I'm still trying to figure that one out. I'll see if I can get a presence going on there. Oh, one other thing I'll say is you may have noticed that the sound of my voice might be a little bit different here. Uh, there's an explanation for that. I used to record this podcast using GarageBand, which is a free digital audio workstation that comes with uh, Mac computers. And it's a great piece of software, don't get me wrong. But the thing is, I would always use the male narrator filter, or maybe is it filter or EQ, I don't know, just to kind of help make my voice sound a little bit more, I I don't know, a little bit more EQ'd. But I noticed when I sat down to record this episode that when I was using GarageBand and the male narrator filter, it was dropping some of my syllables and consonants, no matter how loudly and clearly I pronounced those syllables and consonants. So I switched over to Logic Pro, which is basically a much more featured version of GarageBand, and you have to pay for it. It's, uh, well, mainly for professional recording, which I don't really do, but I do amateur recording. (laughs) And I'm using an EQ setting on it called Voice Over EQ, and I actually like how it sounds, so hopefully uh, that'll make an improvement with this podcast episode. And having said that, for the first segment of Chapter 24, this episode, I am joined by someone who has joined me before, and that is my wife, because I wanted to talk about Peanuts' involvement in my life, and Peanuts has had just as much involvement with Lisa's life, so we got in on this together. The sound quality is a little bit weird because we recorded this over 4th of July weekend in New Buffalo, where we went just this past weekend from when I'm recording this, which is late August. So it wasn't recorded with the usual setup I have in the third bedroom with the podcast microphone and everything. This was with a digital recorder I've had for 13 years. It's going to sound a little bit weirder than normal. I apologize for that. And there is a little bit of buzzing later on in the segment. So please bear with me there. But here is basically how Peanuts has affected, well, the both of us. Well, this is called Autobiography of a Schnook. An autobiography is one's life story. And a big part of my life is the Charles M. Schultz creation called Peanuts. It has been a part of my life literally as far back as I can remember. How about you? Well, same thing. I mean, I don't remember not knowing what Snoopy was especially since we had an actual beagle named Snoopy. I mean, I knew that it was a cartoon strip in the paper, and I had Snoopy sheets, which I believe my mother still has because she never gets rid of anything, and a couple of the storybooks. I know I had uh, He's Your Dog, Charlie Brown, and Play It Again, Charlie Brown. I don't remember ever watching those TV specials, 
I just remember the books. Because both of those were early 70s, right? Or late 60s? Um, I don't know about Play It Again, but I'm pretty sure He's Your Dog is still during the Vince Guaraldi era. So, so that's early 70s, up to early 70s. Because he, I believe Vince Guaraldi died in 1976, I think. 76 or 77-ish? Yeah. Um, much earlier than anybody would have expected. Yeah. And, um, of course, Charlie Brown Christmas. Of course. And the Thanksgiving and the Halloween shows were... I don't know so much about my mother, but I know my father liked Peanuts because he had quite a few of the Fawcett paperbacks. Oh, really? Which I still have because I don't get rid of things either. Not things that are important. But he had the Fawcett paperbacks along with uh, BC. He really liked that strip too. So, And Andy Cap. <laughs> yeah, let's let's enjoy a strip on in the comics page about a... British guy who gets drunk and beats up his wife. I gotta say, I, I would I would occasionally read Andy Cap in the paper, but I never remember seeing that. I don't know if they censored it. No, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I just. I mean, everybody says that, but. But anyway, anyway, I don't want to get off too far off topic. But my dad had those books, and what's funny in in my hometown library, Neptune Township, New Jersey. The upstairs library, which was the children's library, had a few books by Schultz. I think a couple of the story books, like the ones I just mentioned that I had, and a couple books like Happy Birthday, Charlie Brown, which was more kind of a about, you know, behind the scenes sort of thing. But the actual Fawcett paperbacks were in the grown-ups library, which was downstairs. And that kind of blew my mind when I was a kid, because it's like, why are comic books in the adult library? Like, I I didn't, I mean, despite my dad having those books, I didn't quite get at the time that this was something that adults enjoyed, too. Yeah. You know, and you always saw Peanuts things in greeting cards and party decorations. You know, you go to kids' birthday parties, and they'd have... Snoopy paper plates and people had peanuts calendars and the figurines. I mean, it was just everywhere. Yeah. I mean, my first memory was definitely something on TV. What it was, I don't know. I don't remember if it was one of the... It was probably one of the specials because the specials were on all the time with the CBS special presentation intro, which I will drop in right now. Wasn't it the biggest letdown ever if you saw or even yes, the, the I know where you're going thing, and it wasn't and it would be like you know a tribute to Sonny and Cher or something but, terrible like that because oh. <laughs> you had it in your head that like that sound meant it was gonna be a peanut yeah thing. that's that's the equivalent of <laughs> tuning into NBC at ten thirty Central Time in the eighties on Saturday and seeing Saturday Night's main event. Instead of Saturday Night Live. Yes, but as I was saying, like it was the TV specials, the television specials that I remember first knowing about Peanuts. And then I think it was the Fawcett books that I think my parents just kind of started handing to me. I don't know if they were handed down from my brother or if maybe my mom picked them up in uh, garage sales or something. But yeah, I had a bunch of those. And then I remember one day when I was still a little kid opening up the comics in the paper 
and seeing Peanuts. And I was like, oh, it's a comic strip in the paper. Oh, so you didn't know about the comic strip? I did strip? not know about the comic strip right wow. away. My, I mean, that's how, I, that's how it wow. happened to me. I knew mainly of the TV specials because basically if there was a Charlie Brown thing on TV, my family would make sure that I watched it. Hmm. Yeah, an early memory I have of that is watching a boy named Charlie Brown with my cousins and my aunt and uncle and how we were laughing our asses off when their heads would explode. <laughs> oh, in fact, speaking of which, I need to read something. One of the most wonderful things about Wikipedia is that you can make any changes that you want. Let's just say that somebody in this room modified the Wikipedia entry for a boy named Charlie Brown. It started out by saying, A Boy Named Charlie Brown is a 1969 American animated musical film in which several eight-year-old boys in sailor hats take an unsupervised trip to New York City to go on a national television show and not have their heads explode on the air. (laughs) Uh, That revision was uh, taken down shortly afterwards, and the person who edited it uh, and it, it, it made, the person who made the change after that noted in the entry that there was unnecessary information or something. That, <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Oh, another early Peanuts memory of mine was, again, another library story. This was my school library. There were several books that never saw the shelf. They were all collections of Peanuts strips from usually a period of time around a certain theme. So there was the Snoopy Festival, which was all Snoopy strips from, I think like between 1966 and 1970 or 71. And then there was Peanuts Classics and Peanuts Treasury. One of them was more sports focused. And the other, I think, was just a general mix of greatest hits, maybe various storylines and whatever. And there was also a smaller book I think it was all Sunday strips. It may have been Peanuts Every Sunday, just put out under a different cover because, you know, they would do that occasionally. But in my school, every class had a library time every week. You'd go to the library for a half an hour and, you know, your teacher would go outside and smoke or something. And the, the librarian would do some kind of lesson with us, teach us about the Dewey Decimal System or something like that, and we could check out books. And I remember one year... My class had the very first library period of the year. So it was like, Peanuts books! We all checked them out. And the way it went throughout the school year is you'd find out who had that. Like, if you wanted to read, say, the Snoopy Festival, you'd find out what kid in the school had that book. And you'd find out what day they were returning it. And you'd go to the library the same day that kid returned it, and you'd check it out. (laughs) So it was like this network Speaking of Dewey Decimal System, oh God. I had a different experience from you in terms of public library. As I've mentioned on this podcast before, I worked at the Joliet Public Library for seven years and in the nonfiction department, the adult nonfiction department. And as a page and clerk assistant, the bane of my existence at that library was the 741.5 section of the Dewey Decimal System. That's where all the comic strip books were. I could have those things shelf-read and placed perfectly. I turned my back for a second, and I turned back around. 
and the book's all self-destructed and they're all over the place. <laughs> One thing I honestly don't remember ever seeing in that section, peanuts. I'm wondering if those were limited to just the juvenile, excuse me, youth services section. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell that story at another time. But I don't remember seeing Peanuts upstairs. I saw a lot of Garfield stuff, but I don't remember seeing any Peanuts books. Oh, another thing that I had that was growing up, and I, I know I mentioned this before on this on this podcast, were the book and record. The first one that I had was um, Charlie Brown's All-Stars. I amassed quite a collection of those things. I think that my mother just happened to see them when she was shopping at Kmart or something. They must have been like cheap or something. And she was like, oh, here's something I just bring home for the kid. And so I had Charlie Brown's All-Stars. And the thing that I remember most, and f- in fact, what it reminded me of this was the 12-inch version of that that you bought me for my birthday a couple of years ago because I was listening to that recently. One thing I remember about the 7-inch version of the book and record was when I was listening to that, I would get all upset when it was over. The theme music from that special like kind of faded out at the last line of dialogue. And when I was listening to that 12-inch version just a couple of months ago, I was getting flashbacks to being upset that it was over. It's like, oh man, this, this is this is the Charlie Brown's over music playing. Every Peanuts book and record started the same way. Hi, I'm Charlie Brown. You can read along in the book as you listen to the story. You'll know it's time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Because we were too stupid to know that when you run out of text, you have to go on to another page, apparently. Well, there are some really stupid kids out in the world. Now, were the voices on the record, were they the same actors that did the TV specials? No, I think... In the case of uh, Charlie Brown's All-Stars, yes, it was. I think for the most part it was the same, but I actually had the 12-inch A Charlie Brown Christmas, and I played that thing all the time, year-round, for years on end, because that's how much I loved it. I only recently tracked down the 7-inch version on YouTube, and it was a completely new reenactment. I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. I think what they might have done for that was... Because so much of the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas TV special involved visual things, there was some additional dialogue on the 7-inch version to make up for that. When Charlie Brown sees the tree all decorated and all that, I think he in the, on the 7-inch version he actually says something like, What's going on here? Hey, look at the Christmas tree! Or something like that. The 12-inch version was just the dialogue straight from the TV mm. show, though. Mm. I swear... It wasn't until probably about 15-ish years ago when I realized that for every book and record there was for Peanuts, there was a corresponding TV special. Because I never saw Charlie Brown's All-Stars. I never saw He's Your Dog, Charlie Brown. 
because the only things they ever showed on TV were the holiday ones. They only showed the the big three at the end of the year. They showed, sometimes they show, it was your first kiss, Charlie Brown. Sometimes they would show, you're in love, Charlie Brown. But that was it. I never saw, you're a good sport, Charlie Brown. I never saw, you're the greatest, Charlie Brown. Was there an Easter one? Yeah, but that one was probably, when was that done? I don't even know. I think that might have been done in the early 80s. I mean, I really only remember the big three holiday ones. The one when they're in a motocross? Which one was that? That was, I think that was You're a Good Sport, Charlie Brown. Okay, because I also had a book for that too, a soft cover book. And of course, one I know you have still not seen to this day, Flash Beagle. <laughs> Which, I gotta bring this up. I gotta tell this story and do a little plug for my friend Bill Pepper, who hosts a monthly podcast called It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown. It focuses mostly on the animated specials and full-length movies, but he also talks about the strips and things. It's a fun podcast. Please listen to it. I will link it in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. I think sometime late last year... No, I know when it was. was. It was January, I think, or maybe December, when he was talking about Happy New Year, Charlie Brown, which I distinctly remember watching, and... This was before we had a VCR. I would actually take an audio tape recorder and record the sound from the TV. And I played the living snot out of that after it aired. And there was one scene that I distinctly remember very well. It was at the New Year's Eve party, and Lucy was hosting a game of Lucy Says. And there was a song that went along with it. When Bill talked about uh, Happy New Year, Charlie Brown, he didn't say a darn thing about it. I looked it up on Wikipedia. There was no mention of it. I did a Google search. There was no mention. I was like, did I hallucinate that song? I found out later that it was actually from It's Flash Beagle, Charlie Brown, which I, to this day, have never seen. So I'm wondering if at least one affiliate might have edited that scene from that special and mm. stuck it into the New Year's Eve party scene mm. in Happy New Year, Charlie Brown. Did. There were times like how uh, the movie uh, A Boy Named Charlie Brown has the scene of um, Snoopy yeah. and Red Baron from The Great Pumpkin. Yep. So yeah, they recycled they that. They did do that. So I don't know if anybody can confirm that. Uh, let me know, Schnook Podcast at... Uh, on Twitter and Instagram and autobioshnookpodcast.com. Well, one thing that I know of, which I know you have never seen because I don't think it was ever actually produced. When I was in third grade, my teacher did a whole unit with us about recycling, which was a really pretty new term in the general lexicon. This sure. was around 1980. We did a couple things like uh, she had us bring in old toys and stuff that was broken and had a bunch of uh, supplies like glue and whatever and had us make a new toy out of all these broken toys upcycling somehow i don't know how she got this but she gave us each these booklets that was basically the storyboard for a peanuts cartoon about recycling Hmm. and and about the environment and I remember I have got to tear apart my mother's house because I know there is no way I would have actually thrown this out because it was uh, 
a booklet that had the storyboard of this cartoon. And it even had at the beginning, like a little introduction by Charles Schultz and a letter from Jimmy Carter, who was president at the time, about how you know much he supported environmental awareness and that kind of thing. And I don't remember what the proposed show was to be called. I don't, like, separate your trash, Charlie Brown, or something like that. But um, I got to find it because that's probably a a true collector's item. Mm. Um, But I remember we got that in, like, around 1980. Wow. And, yeah, just one thing I have to mention, just to get it out of the way, the full-length motion pictures like uh, Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown, and I haven't seen that since it was on HBO last. Well, that was on in HBO. The 80s. Like it was one of those things. It was on HBO like every five minutes. Yeah, years. and Bon Voyage, Charlie Brown, and Don't Come Back, which mm-hmm. I really want to watch again because that that was interesting in that you actually had real adult voices in that cartoon. I don't think you actually saw the adults, but you heard them. It, it wasn't just like a muted trombone or whatever that sound effect mm. was. And I still haven't seen the new Peanuts movie. It's on our TiVo, you know. I saw that it is. So we should watch that because I heard really good things. Yeah, I I heard. I heard they kept to the spirit of the of the real stuff. I mean, it's just real stuff. God, looks listen to my vocabulary. It's a little, a little difficult because you know it was made after Charles Schultz died. But I guess the good thing about it is that his family. I think they are extremely protective of his work. They should be. And, you know, they are very choosy about what they do. And I know that there's a couple artists that are basically certified to do, like, new Peanuts artwork, you know, for things like Hallmark cards and whatever. I think they had to go through an extensive audition and interview in order to have the permission to do this. Yeah. I mean, their work is very good, but I think his family, like his his widow and his oldest son in particular, are very on top of things. So it's just still weird. <laughs> Charles Schultz drew, I, I mean, we just looked this up, it was something like 19,000 strips. Good Lord, yeah. You think one a day for 50 years and he never took time off. Well, I mean, he took time off, but he would draw. Well, yeah, I he mean, would, thing he is would like, have a backlog of strips, but so like, it's not like the man never took a vacation. Well, yeah, either, I know but. that, but it's but it's like he had he had provisions for every single day. Yeah. And he had unlike say Berkeley Breathed, who was in a nasty car accident yeah. and couldn't, and there were literally a few months of reruns. Yeah, but Peanuts there were never no, had that. No, I mean, it's it's like you know when you take that work and put it all together, it's one of the most extensive works by any one person, one person in, yeah. like, human history. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you still have, like, Beetle Bailey and those other Mort Walker, Dick Brown cartoons, but, but the thing is, they're not the original no, artists. They're, no. they're, they, they've been passed down by to families. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, with Peanuts, if you see a Peanuts strip, it is by Schultz 100%. And, you know, when we went to the Charles Schultz Museum yes. in Santa Rosa, California... Twice. ...which I highly recommend to anybody who cares about Peanuts... The most amazing thing, I mean, there were was there were a lot of amazing things when we were there, but one was on the first floor, they have changing exhibits of peanut strips of all different kinds of themes. And I think when we were there, they had one about um, peanuts and politics and 
sports and you know different things but just looking at the strips up close and realizing like these weren't copies these I didn't were the know actual that they... boards that he wrote yeah, like these were could, the real thing like you could see erasure marks and you could see white out and how like and, the like if you see like a gray background that looks very dotted and patterned it's because it was there was literally a piece of paper with a pattern taped like cut so, out and yeah. taped or glued in that space like probably just as a time saver yeah to... yeah you go to the schultz museum the one in santa rosa not so much the traveling one that ha- that goes around every now and then which is pretty cool it's though. still pretty cool yeah like if, if the, a touring exhibit comes to your area definitely check it out but at the museum in santa rosa you are seeing the actual ones that schultz himself drew at his desk yeah you're it's that's pretty that knocks me on my butt when i noticed stunning. that yeah Uh, You know, when you see this work that you've loved your entire life. He didn't write this strip necessarily just for children. Kind of going back to what I said, when I was kind of amazed to see that the paperback books were in the adults' library, not the children's library. And when we were both, like, talking about this not long ago and realizing how, like, the TV specials were... I mean, these were things that our parents introduced us to and said, we're going to watch this. My parents were born the same year as your mom. Your dad's a little bit older. But for all of our parents, Peanuts came about when they were kids. That's true. I mean, you know, your mom and my parents were about seven years old. Your dad was 10. And they probably all lived in areas where, you know, they all had access to large city papers so they were probably exposed to the strip from if not from the beginning at least close to it so this was something they grew up with yeah yeah when when those fantagraphics books came out and we started buying them you know these were these were hardcover books that had two years of peanuts in each book so you know it'd be like 1970 71 72 73 like that I know when we read the first book, the 1950 to 52 book, man, this strip is kind of dark. <laughs> yeah. Like it was not a cheerful, nope. kitty kind of strip. And when you realize the 1950s, kind of the whole people, a lot of people, when they think of the 1950s, they think of happy days and Ozzy and Harriet, lots of like shiny, happy stuff. And how times were so easy and so it was so much easier and happier if you were white. But there's a whole thing going on in humor and pop culture. A lot of sarcasm, a lot of satire, psychological. Like that's that was the era when it started to become acceptable to go see a shrink. Which is precisely why Schultz put the Psychiatric Health Five Cents (laughs) booth in the strips. But it was like people were starting to go to psychiatrists and starting to talk about their problems. And when you look at like the humor of the time, a lot of it was very hip and sophisticated. And, you know, the peanut strips reflected that. So it wasn't just for the kids. There were things that adults got out of it, too. And I think for a time, especially in the 60s, Peanuts was more popular with adults than it was mm-hmm. with kids. And thinking about that, it's I remember like when I was a kid, I would read Peanuts because, well, that's what you do. You read Peanuts. Mm-hmm. Not because necessarily I found it funny or, or whatever. It's because you had to read Peanuts. 
But as an adult, I find myself laughing out loud quite a lot when I'm looking at peanut strips because I think there is so much more that I understand now. Well, there's references and things that we get. Well, it might also just be of the times. Like, there's a strip where Snoopy is ice skating and he mentions Sonia Haney or something. Well, if you don't know who that is... You Google her name and look, oh, it's like, oh, she was a famous ice skater a long time ago. Like, if you don't get a reference, you can easily look it up. And, of course, doing other things like trying to spot where there's a name dropped in there where you think that Schultz might have put it in because it's a funny-sounding name. Yeah. Like the whole reason why Beethoven is Schroeder's favorite composer. (laughs) Schultz's favorite composer was Brahms. But he said that Beethoven is a funnier-sounding name. So that's why he used that instead of Brahms. Well, yeah, or like how you know he named Peppermint Patty after the candy. Yeah. <laughs> because that just sounded funny. I mean, it has nothing to do really with the character yeah, herself. Yeah. And interesting that he picked that name, considering that for years there was a main character named Patty. I think Patty was in the first Peanut strip. Yes. And she was a character in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Yes. Kind of going back to the Fawcett books, one memory of my childhood. For a long time, when I was a little kid, when Easter happened, that meant new Peanuts book. It's not that I asked for it, it's just that it happened. Oh yeah, I and got I got Peanuts books too for Easter. I just remember one, like one Easter morning, I woke up before my parents did, which is unheard of for me to beat my mother out of bed. Yeah, right? I just woke up and I couldn't go back to sleep, so I went downstairs and all the Easter stuff was already out. So I sat down there and I read from cover to cover, Jogging is in, Snoopy. <laughs> The thing that I remember most about this, and that I don't know why, but this is one of my favorite storylines. It's not particularly necessarily laugh-out-loud funny, but it was a storyline in which the kite-eating tree, it was the last straw for Charlie Brown, so he got revenge by chewing a big chunk out of the kite-eating tree. Yeah. And then he found out the EPA was after him for doing that, so he ran away, and while he was out, he happened upon a bunch of little kids who had a baseball team that needed a coach. And that's the whole reason why I made a big deal about how for Christmas, I think, one year, I wanted that 1977 book mm-hmm. because I knew that that storyline would be in there. Mm. And then I found out we already had a copy, and so we now <laughs> I had two copies. Yeah. I think it's time for me to talk about Yolog. Oh, do so, tell. We got a lot of Peanuts influence from our parents, and as we got older... Peanuts was not something that you outgrow. It's not something... I mean, like, Garfield, you outgrow. Peanuts stuff, you don't outgrow. And I mean, you know, Charlie Brown Christmas was something that, you know, that was a must-watch show every year. Was, is, always will be. When I went off to college, I went to Douglas College, which is the women's college of Rutgers University. There's a tradition every year at the holidays called Yule Log. And it goes back to the first year that the college existed, which was uh, 1918. The college pretty much was contained in this big old house at the time. And there were a few students who boarded there and the classes were held there. They ate there. Everything went on there. And the woman who founded the college, Mabel Smith Douglas, she was really big on parties and celebrations and starting traditions and so at christmas time 
the girls who were boarding there asked if they could burn a Yule log in the big fireplace in the main hall. And she decided to make a ceremony out of it where there was a procession down the stairs and there was singing of Christmas carols and all of that. And a few years later, when the college grew, they built a chapel. And one of the stipulations for the the woman who donated the money to build the chapel required that the chapel had a way to reenact this ceremony. So they had on the altar stage, whatever you want to call it, at the front, there were doors that would open and there was a fireplace there. It was only used for Yule Log. And they had a detachable staircase that they would hook to the um, side balcony. So there would be a staircase that would come down and it was a beautiful ceremony. And Standing on the stairs would be seniors in white choir robes holding candles. And the seniors were all chosen based on service to the school, you know, uh, campus leaders and people who did stuff for the school. They would be assigned different parts to read. I had participated in the Yule Log Committee when I was a freshman, so I knew kind of how the whole thing went. And one of the readings was from... Luke chapter 2, the story of Christ's birth, which I already knew from Linus's recitation of it. I was bound and determined to be the senior who read that. And I was chosen to be a stair senior because I was the yearbook editor. And I went to the audition, read Luke 2 and from memory. And of course they chose me because they couldn't not choose me. (laughs) Act the actual Yule log ceremony you know i recited my piece holding a lit candle which i'm not too crazy about lit candles so that was yeah i told that that story before that was the most nerve-wracking part but when it was done uh afterwards one of my friends said you sounded like a priest and another friend said no she sounded like linus (laughs) which was a huge compliment well yeah because i was thinking of that the whole time, just thinking of that scene and something that you noticed a couple, I don't know when you noticed this, but that when Linus is reciting Luke 2, when he says, behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, he drops his blanket and he doesn't pick it up again until he's done. Yep. He picks it up again before he goes to Charlie Brown and says that's what Christmas is all yeah. about. Which is just, it just gives that scene some extra power. Yeah. And years later, I forget when we got this book, but there was a really great book oh, yeah. put out all about Charlie Brown Christmas and why it happened and how it happened and and just how... Either they were, you know, some of the people involved with the production are like, should we put this in? And what did Charles Schultz say? If we don't, then who will? Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm not a, like, a religious person, but I still feel that that was an important thing to put in that show. And just yeah. the fact that it has been something aired on TV every year for more than 50 years, I think that's very significant. This doesn't really have anything to do with anything, but for some reason, this just popped into my my mind. My friend Bridget, when she got married, like I, w- I did a reading for her wedding, and so I had to be at the uh, rehearsal. 
And the rehearsal dinner was on the same night that they were broadcasting a Charlie Brown <laughs> Christmas. And I mentioned that when we were at dinner and Bridget said, you know, I know that. I thought about that. I was so ticked off that they that, that, that it happened that way. I was actually thinking of seeing if they could bring a TV in so we could watch it. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't really so much trauma, but it, well, maybe it is trauma. Another way that peanuts traumatize me. You, when you talked about holding a candle... I have my own Peanuts candle correlation story. Second grade, when we were prepping for First Communion, and every Sunday leading up to First Communion, we all had to do something in church. And I remember there was something that we had to do where that involved all of us little kids holding candles. And I had just seen Bon Voyage, Charlie Brown, Don't Come Back. And there's a big scene when... Uh, this building burns down because the Baron or somebody else like knocked over a candle. Of course, the place caught fire from the candle being knocked over. And when I found out that I had to hold a candle in church, I was like, oh, hell no. Because <laughs> if I drop that candle and hits, it hits the floor, because it's a carpeted church, you know? Yeah. It's like, I'm going to burn that friggin' church down. And I, I told my parents, I was like, no, I'm not holding a candle. So my mom lit a candle. And she dropped it onto the kitchen floor, and she said, what's happening? I said, um, it's on the floor, but nothing else is happening. It's still lit. And is anything on fire? Uh, no. And she picked it up and blew it out. Yeah, my, my mother would have burned down the kitchen if she had done that. Oh, speaking of your mother, there's something that she said that always sticks out in my mind, and that was when Charles Schultz died. And Charles Schultz is one of I literally two people I ever cried over when... Mm -hmm. Like, I, and, and, I mean, I shed tears over. That was the only, I mean, my own family, when members died, I didn't cry. I mean, even but, though we were expecting it because we knew he was very ill, but still. That it happened all of a sudden because he had and, a heart attack. And that it happened on the day that yeah. the last strip appeared, which is so very poetic. But something that your mother said and also explains why I, uh, another reason I think that I get a lot more laughs out of Peanuts these days she said, he's the only person who truly understood beagles. Well, we've discussed many times that Snoopy is our hero. Oh yeah, Snoopy's been my hero since ever. And I'm glad you understand this because it's hard for me to really explain definitively why. In my mind, Snoopy and the Fonz I always made that connection. They're, they're connected somehow that I don't know. I, I still really can't explain it. And it's not the, the cool thing, not like Joe Cool. I just, maybe just because the Fonz could do anything, hmm. but yet still, maybe this is it. That like both the Fonz and Snoopy seem to be invincible and they could do things that other people around them couldn't but yet also had their own vulnerabilities. Oh, yeah. Oh, and their yeah. own flaws. Mm -hmm. The people around them looked up to them. Yeah. And that they also did their own thing and weren't really bothered by others' expectations. Maybe yeah. that's it, but yeah. But yeah, the, and the thing is, like, since you came into my life, I have known Spot oh, and God. Ruthie. And currently Lola. There are three beagles who have been part of my life. And I've had plenty of encounters with other beagles as well, like Forrest down the street from us. <laughs> and uh, Jesse Janes, who lived in the building next door to us. And, and Hunter. And Hunter. 
So we got a good feel for what beagles are like, and there are so many things now that Snoopy did in peanut strips that, that just make total sense, because that's exactly what a beagle would do. That's just what this damn dog would do. Well, it's that beagles are very clever, Yep. and they have personalities. Oh, yeah. Like that... And I'm not saying this is that there's no other dog. I mean, there. I'm sure you can make the argument for other breeds, especially other hounds. Because remember, early, for the first 15 years of the strip, Snoopy was more or less a dog. Yeah. Like, Snoopy walked on all fours. And, and I mean, there were things about Snoopy that showed more personality and kind of some human traits like the fact that his doghouse had a TV antenna in yeah. one strip. And, but still, Snoopy was generally a dog until, like, the mid-60s. You know, he became anthropomorphic. With Snoopy. that You know, this dog napping on top of his doghouse is thinking about being, you know, the World yep. War One fighter pilot or... Joe or Cool. Joe Cool or the world-famous... Grocery clerk. <laughs> Not making that up. That really was a storyline. Yes, it was. World famous lawyer. We have a Christmas ornament of, the, of yeah. that. Yeah. Yes. It was something the world famous. Well, there were many world I mean, there's a whole long list of the world famous thing. But it's the fact that, you know, you think like when your dog is napping in the sun or you're curled up on your couch, what is your dog thinking about? And you could picture a beagle having this kind of broad imagination. Like it makes sense with a beagle because beagles really do have a sense of humor. They do. And even more so is like the really older ones with Snoopy. Like one thing I'm thinking of right now is when Charlie Brown's just sitting with a big smile on his face with his eyes closed. And then Snoopy rushes in and Charlie Brown's like, he can tell when I'm just thinking about food. That is so true about beagles. Oh, good Lord. Maybe other types of hounds, like coon hounds, I think, can be just black and white, but not yeah. a beagle. But again, with Schultz and funny names... It, that's exactly what I believe yeah. it would have been. That he chose beagle because that sounds funny and it looks funny yeah and also like the dog that he based snoopy on was not a beagle no i think the dog was a was spike spike yeah, was spike. that dog yeah and snoopy's brother spike was named I mean, after he may him. have had some hound in him yeah. but he wasn't <clears throat> a beagle oh and speaking of snoopy and stuff my brother played snoopy and you're a good man charlie brown in probably when he was in eighth grade I was way too young to remember that at all. And my mother is mad at herself to this day because she took pictures during the performance and none of them turned out. Aww. So there's no so at least she has no physical memory of him playing Snoopy other than what they all remember about it. Well, we did get to see it on Broadway. Yes, we did. We I saw think it. It was around 2000. It was 99, I think. Okay. Schultz was still alive, and okay. as far as we knew, well. Yeah. Anthony Rapp was Charlie Brown. Yes. B.D. Wong was. Was he Linus or Schroeder? I think it was think, Schroeder. Yeah. And what impressed me about his performance of Schroeder is that it looked like when he was like fake playing the piano, he looked like he was hitting the correct keys and everything. <laughs> so that was pretty impressive. And. Um, there were 
two actors who eventually went on to win Tonys for their performances. Kristen Chenoweth, who is now very famous in her own right, that was her first big Broadway role, and she won a Tony for playing Sally. She stole the show. And Roger Bart, he was also in the original Broadway cast of The Producers. Mm. He played Snoopy. We didn't get to see him in the show we went to, but yeah. his understudy was pretty freaking good, yeah, too. I, yeah, <laughs> if his understudy... I, I can't imagine how good Roger Bart must have been, because really, but, that understudy was fantastic. But what cracked me up was, when you go to see a Broadway show, if there's any substitution in the cast for that performance, they usually have it on a sign out front. Yeah. And there's also usually a uh, a little slip of paper stuck into the playbill. Yep. So that you know who's playing. Like, if you're there to see a particular actor, you'd know if they're not there that day. It cracked me up that when we walked into the theater, there was, you know, a sign that said, you know, for this performance, the role of Snoopy will be played by so-and-so. And it just is like, the role of Snoopy. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, it just, it just made me laugh. It's following theater tradition and protocol but it's like to just <laughs> like the role of snoopy <laughs> and i just remember when the curtain lifted at the beginning of the show and there were like the comic strip representations of each of the characters and i think everybody in the theater was just a sobbing mess at oh that. it was that i mean it's it's such a it's such a nice show and i still remember the last song of the show it's called happiness. So it's like talking about, you know, happiness is, and each character steps forward and, yep. you know, says like, you know, happiness is hitting a home run. Spoilers. <laughs> Whatever. Shut up. You can get the soundtrack and hear it, but and I mean. You can get, and you can get the actual peanut, like, animated movie yeah. of it, too. But it's, it's like each character talks about happiness, but like they were, it was kind of like the end of the day. So they're all in their jammies and they were all just kind of all close together on stage. And it was just so warm and fuzzy and wonderful. And Anthony Rapp did a wonderful job as Charlie yep. Brown, but it was just funny for me because just a few years earlier, I saw him playing Mark in Rent. And <laughs> my like, mom used to work with his mom. And that, you know... <laughs> It could not be a more different show, <laughs> you know, renting yeah. your good man, Charlie Brown. Yeah. But it was, uh, I mean, it was just a very, very well done show. Oh, you remember the other time we went to New York for something peanutsy? I mean, we did other things, but we went to Macy's in hopes to get a hug from Snoopy. Oh, yeah. But well, we, we got there too late. That's because Macy's <laughs> sucks. They do. They really do. Having said that, if they wish to sponsor this podcast, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to talk. Well, we haven't really talked about the Vince Garaldi music. Oh. Because that's kind of also looking at how Peanuts is not exclusively for children. Yes. And I mean, I know this goes back to the first time that Peanuts was animated for television, which was that documentary in like 1963. Like that was the first, Ish. the first time yeah. that Peanuts was really animated outside of uh, like television commercials. Yeah, we we actually got to see that documentary at the Peanuts Museum. Yeah. It was like they were showing it that day, so I went to, and I can kind of see why it didn't air. It wasn't really anything. Yeah. The soundtrack album came out, but not the actual but documentary. They, but that they chose, instead of having 
music for children, which just sounds terrible, <laughs> or having, you know, kind of goofy, bouncy music, yeah. that they chose this totally hip jazz composer and artist. Yeah. Because I, I know I, I remember reading, I think it was in the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas book, how one of the producers, uh, somebody had given him a tape of a Vince Guaraldi performance called Cast Your Fate to the Wind. Yep. You know, if you listen to it, it sounds very familiar in oh, style yeah. because it sounds like a lot of the music we came to know in the TV specials. And I remember reading about this, that... This guy was listening to it in his car while driving over the Golden Gate Bridge. Hmm. And it's like, wow. Interesting. <laughs> and I remember, I think it was this past Christmas, we always load up the CD player with like certain Christmas albums when we decorate the tree. I think I was putting my finishing touches on the tree, and I had Cast Your Fate to the Wind playing off my iPod. And you walked in and you said, okay, this is not Christmas music, but this works. Well, yeah, because... Well, it's not all of the... It is a really cool tune, too. But, I mean, when you look at the Charlie Brown Christmas album, which I first knew of back in the 80s, <laughs> uh, I think, like, at that time, Walgreens would sell a variety of cassette... Well, really, all the grocery stores, everybody was selling, like, cheap cassette tapes of... Of course. ...of popular albums or compilations or whatever. And I know I picked up... Or Charlie Brown Christmas, and I thought this was just a tape that happened. I didn't know that this album had existed pretty much since, like, 1965, 66. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I loved the tape, and then when I got a CD player, it was one of the first CDs that I yep. got. Not all the music on there is specific to Christmas. Yeah, even like, the stuff that has Christmas title. Like, Christmas is Coming, the only reason it's a Christmas tune is because it's called Christmas is Coming. Yeah. But it doesn't, I mean, there's, you could play that anytime yeah. and it would just be like this cool jazz tune. Like WGN Morning News just a couple of days ago. They were playing that in the background. Yeah. Well, yeah. And Linus and Lucy. I mean, that, which you is hear the that. unofficial theme song. You hear that everywhere. Skate, skating was reused in, uh, your, in A Boy Named Charlie Brown during Snoopy's uh, Rockefeller Center scene. I did not know there was a soundtrack album for that until... I was listening to Jonathan Brandmeier in the morning once on WLUP, and I heard skating in the background. I was like, where's he getting that from? Because the only published version I know of this is on the book and record. And how, how's he getting it without the voices and everything? And then one day when I was at work at the library, and I went downstairs, walked past Circulation where all the records were, I saw at the end of one of the record aisles the soundtrack from a Charlie Brown Christmas. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. So I grabbed it and I listened to that thing like nonstop for a long time, even year round. Well, it's also, I mean, I've told you, you know, many examples in the past of, you know, how I have synesthesia, where like yeah. when I hear music, it's very easy for me to either envision, co like I associate colors and images yeah. with music. The Vince Guaraldi music, to me, is extremely colorful. There's many mm. colors in it and different chord progressions in it that it all is very, very pleasing to me. I mean, I'm not a fan of a lot of 
jazz music. Not saying I don't like jazz, but it's not something I gravitate towards. But this hits the spot. <laughs> and we, we haven't really talked about uh, a boy named Charlie Brown. Well, except when I talked about watching it with my cousins and the Wikipedia entry yes. that I added yes, to. Yes, but you have not talked about <clears throat> the importance of that movie in your well-being. You mean how, say, if I stay home from work sick, how I found that, say, around 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, if I watch that movie, I feel better afterwards. It's a great movie. I didn't come upon it until I was probably about in junior high. I didn't watch, I never saw it when I was a kid. Wow. For some reason, they were the Disney Channel was doing a free preview week, and there was a thing in the TV guide listing like the different show things they were going to be showing on it. And for some reason, they were going to be showing a boy named Charlie Brown, and it was while my mother and I were going to be away. So I set the VCR to record it, and I was like, "Oh, please let this record," yep. because when you said it, if you were going to be away, you know, if the power went out, forget it. Like, yep. <laughs> but it recorded, and it wasn't a sick day movie for me, but it was definitely a feel-good movie. Like, oh, yeah. if you, you know, if you had a bad day in school, you come home and you watch a boy named Charlie Brown, and you're going to feel better. <laughs> and I, th- I think it's probably just that end scene because I think the I don't know if this is what it is, but. You know, I say that I watch it around 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock. And when you think about it, at the the very last scene when Linus goes to Charlie Brown's house, Charlie Brown's just still in bed, it's about 4 in the afternoon. Because mm-hmm. school had been out, they yeah. had a baseball game. Yeah. That's about the time, the real time that I'm seeing that, yeah. too. When Linus basically <laughs> gives him, you know, did you notice that the world didn't end speech? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, it didn't end. Things are okay. I think that might have something to do with it. I don't know. And I just have to get this in. Like, if you have the DVD of A Boy Named Charlie Brown, you may not have noticed it, but it's a little bit longer than it had ever been before because there's, like, some extended dialogue. And I noticed this one time when we were recently watching it. I was like, wait a minute. This isn't how I Before E starts. Yeah. There's, like, an extra verse before Mm -hmm. the main verse kicks in. It's like, whoa! I Before E except after C, or when sounded like A, as in neighbor and way. Now, besides Snoopy, who is your favorite character? Oh my goodness, that's a hard one. Part of me wants to say Charlie Brown, but that just might be just default. It might also be because I feel I can relate to Charlie Brown in some ways, and that, I don't know. What, kind of like how Schultz said that Charlie Brown was who he was, and Snoopy is who he wished he could be? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Well, well, I do relate to Charlie Brown in that we both have thin hair <laughs> and, and and a big head. So I don't I don't know. That's a, that's a really tough one. I mean, yeah, Snoopy easily is my favorite character. He's my hero. I mean, I I well up every time we watch a Charlie Brown Christmas and he makes his grand entrance on the ice <laughs> rink or, or on the pond. I should yep. say it's not really yep. an ice rink. Yep. Because like this is for all practical purposes Snoopy's animation debut. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't the first time he was animated, but, you know. Well, what's Snoopy's other animated experience that I know is near and dear to your heart? Like, say, when during an airing of Charlie Brown Christmas? Oh, yes. You did not get to no. see this because you grew up in the wrong part of the country. 
the Dolly Madison commercials. If you don't know what that is, you didn't grow up in the Midwest. Because out here, there were Dolly Madison commercials in which the Peanuts gang was part of it. And they're eating like zingers and I don't remember what else. I just remember the zingers. And I especially remember that they were warning each other about the zinger zapper. You want to protect your zingers from the zinger zapper who would come by and swipe your zingers. Who was the zinger zapper? It was Snoopy in a mask. The zinger zapper is someone in this room. Okay, now we know who the zinger zapper is. The butler? You blockhead. When you have zingers around, there's no escaping the zinger zapper. (laughs) Yep, we did not have that in the New York area. We just had the York peppermint patty commercials. We had those too. That didn't have peppermint patty in them. Well, no. Well, that's okay. She wasn't in a Charlie Brown Christmas. She didn't exist yet. Yeah, in fact, I don't remember Peanuts characters in any commercials until, Mm. like, MetLife started using Snoopy. Yeah. But, I mean, there may have been. I just don't remember. Here's something to think about. Why is Peanuts still important to us? Well, first, let me just say, my favorite character besides Snoopy, Linus. Just because of his wisdom and his sweetness and that he is who he is and he does not apologize for it like he drags around that blanket and he doesn't care who makes fun of him for it this is important to him and he's gonna stick with it yeah he's definitely my favorite after snoopy so why is peanuts still important to us when we're in our 40s now And a new Peanuts strip hasn't been produced in over 20 years. Dang. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you're right, because the last one was... February. February 13th, 2000. And even then, that was was technically a rerun of an earlier strip, because it was the same strip, just with an additional cell. Yeah, yeah. Or an additional panel. Well, I mean, a couple things. I mean, one is that... Kind of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like, it's something good that has been there. And, you know, it's kind of like Coca-Cola and chocolate chip cookies. And, oh man, no, I like you know, Coca-Cola it's, it's just something cookies. that you know you can always turn to. And, you know, it's never going to let you down. Like, it's just a good thing to have in your life. The way it was created, it's that it's something that we could grow up with because it wasn't childish. And it gave people of all ages, like people of all ages could get something out of it. I think it's yeah. it's kind of like the way the Muppets were originally, you know, and, and Sesame Street, how like Jim Henson was smart enough to, you know, him, him and, That's the ch- true. and Children's Television Workshop they knew, you know, they kind of had the idea right from the beginning that we need to make something that the adults are going to watch with their kids. Yeah, even like when we were watching the first, because we have the DVD of the first season of Sesame Street, and I was watching, I was like, oh my goodness, they're, they went there. Well, I mean, <laughs> there's some stuff. <laughs> there's some stuff that, yeah, it's like, man, it's, it goes way over kids' heads, but it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was a little, a little edgy in the beginning, but in those first couple episodes, especially like the film segments that they did and stuff that, 
you could hold up alongside of, you know, Monty Python or Rowan yeah. Martin's Laugh-In or things that were definitely made just for adults. But even as they went on, like we were just talking the other day about the Muppet movie. The Muppet movie worked because there was lots of stuff that the adults would understand and appreciate yeah. that might go right over the kids' heads. Same with Peanuts. So it's, it's just like multifaceted. I mean, there's also the nostalgia, too, that it's something that we had as a kid and we never felt that we needed to put it aside. Mm. I mean, like when people talk about such and such was a simpler time, I mean, the 70s were not a simple time by any stretch of the imagination. But when you're five, life is simple. (laughs) No matter who you are, for the most part, your life is simple because you aren't encumbered by the problems of the world. And you still have somebody who's going to make you breakfast and lunch and dinner. And, you know, like you still have that kind of comfort no matter who you are it maybe it makes you think of when you were a little kid and life was simpler and you kind of remember that comfort even though you're an adult and life is a lot more complicated i'm more comfortable now as an adult than i ever no, was no no but i mean no i get that and i agree with that myself but i'm saying you can still remember what it was like to not be encumbered by all the problems of the world. Maybe that's it. I don't know. I don't know. For me, it's just quite simply that I like it. Period. Well, it's like when people say, oh, why do you play old video games? Is it nostalgia? It's like, no, because I still like them. But it's something comfortable. It's something pleasing to you. It's something that is enjoyable. And that mm-hmm. you can spend a lot of time with and get a lot out of where other things from when you were a kid were more one-dimensional. And I think another part of it is that if you like Peanuts, it shows that you have a soul. Well, yeah. Anybody who likes Snoopy. Well, and to be fair, I don't think I have ever encountered a person in my entire life who said, oh, Peanuts sucks. Like, I don't think I've ever known, maybe people who weren't as into it as we are or you know, as other fans are, but I've never heard somebody just say outright, I don't like Peanuts. Yeah, that's true. I, don't, I think that there, there are people like that who exist, they just don't want to admit it. Or or we just <laughs> don't talk to them. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, and I highly recommend they're that. Like that con- they're like a woman that I worked with a long time ago who didn't like chocolate. Like, how can you, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Well, why don't we wrap it up here and allow me to thank you so you hear me thank you so you don't just have to, like, hear it in the credits of the podcast. So, there you go. And then again, you don't listen to podcasts. So, you, for all I know, I could I don't be... listen to yours. I listen to other ones. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I've heard all these stories. See, I don't need to listen to yours. After we recorded this segment, I took the liberty to do some uh, research to clarify a few things. He's Your Dog, Charlie Brown, is actually from 1968, and Play It Again, Charlie Brown, is from 1971. And Lisa was correct. Vince Guaraldi died in 1976. And um, It's the Easter Beagle, Charlie Brown, is from 1974. 
between the time that we recorded that segment and the time you're now hearing it, I have since watched both Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown, and Bon Voyage, Charlie Brown, and Don't Come Back. And I can't believe I actually enjoyed those, because now that I've watched them again, probably about 35 years later, man, they're boring. I'm I'm sorry, but there are just a lot of scenes that could have been edited down or removed completely. And going to camp and having a multi-day raft race, is that unsupervised? I just couldn't wrap my brain around that. It didn't make much sense to me. You may have noticed that uh, Snoopy Come Home was uh, conspicuously absent from our discussion, and there's reason for that. It's because neither of us, well, both Lisa and I were traumatized by that movie. Uh, Lisa said she never cried so hard in her life. And me, I just can't watch that. It's just... Too sad. Even though it has a really happy ending, it's just too sad. And it just seemed kind of odd, too, but apparently one of the reasons it seems kind of odd for a Peanuts movie is that Schultz was trying to do a Disney kind of movie to the extent that he actually enlisted the Sherman Brothers to write the music. So uh, I think that was an experiment that didn't work because he didn't do that again. (laughs) But anyway, enough about peanuts except to say that hey remember how i mentioned charlie brown's all-stars in the book in record format that was obviously one of the first records i ever had as for the first compact disc i ever had well coming up next in music for schnooks well just keep listening i've made it no secret that i love music Heck, every single episode of this podcast has a music segment. Many people talk about the first record they ever bought or received, be it a single or an album. Now, as much as I love music, I honestly have no idea what my first record was in any capacity, whether it was one given to me because I wanted it, given to me just because it was given to me, or even bought with my own money. I I just don't remember. I don't remember my first cassette tape either. It might be that records were just such a quotidian part of my life in some way or another since the day I was born that I just took it for granted. I'd like to think that the reason so many people know exactly what their first record was had to do with when they came of age, perhaps at a time when current music was much more memorable than, say, when I came of age. Then I remember there are people my age and younger who also remember their first records. What I do remember, however was the first compact disc I ever owned. I'm going to take you back to uh, circa 1985, when I was still listening to current pop music. I was at uh, Musicland one day at the mall. I think it was uh, Orland Square in Orland Park, Illinois. And I was browsing the records and tapes for maybe Michael Jackson or Twisted Sister. Up near the front of the store and off to the right a little bit, I realized I was looking at, well, uh, some unusual items. Like this copy of Planetary Invasion by Midnight Star. It was uh, bigger than a cassette, but smaller than the record. It was in a long, clear plastic case, with the album cover on the top part and the disc on the bottom part. What is this thing? Is it a new kind of record? Hmm, probably not, because it has a shiny silver surface with no obvious grooves, and the spindle hole is much too big to attach to a turntable. Oh, yay, and the price is ridiculously high. 
I quickly walked away and found the cassettes. But every time after that that I went to a record store, I kept seeing more and more of these weird overpriced silver discs. I learned that they were a new kind of playback medium that needed a special player. A couple of my friends called them those little laser discs, because instead of a stylus, the player would shine a laser beam on the disc, read a series of zeros and ones burned into that disc, and convert those binary strings into audio. Over the next few years, I learned piecemeal what the attraction was. To play a record, you had to put a stylus directly on the surface, and as such, every time you play a record, it gets damaged to an extent. To play a cassette tape, the magnetic tape itself is manipulated by a number of different parts, and it gets squeezed between a rubber roller and a metal capstan, and uh, magnetic tape is prone to hiss. In both cases, vinyl and cassette tape, the playback medium gets worn down to an extent with every single play. However, because compact discs are read by a laser beam, the playback surface doesn't have that wear and tear, or if it does, it's significantly reduced. Compact discs aren't prone to additional hiss, and unlike with records, as you get closer to the end, the sound quality doesn't diminish. It's all ones and zeros converted to sound. My brother brought up a good point, too. If you want to get a CD player, because it's all zeros and ones and it's just being read by a laser, you don't have to worry about getting a player that has the best sound quality. They all have the same sound quality. So all you'd really need is something cheap, and then just let your stereo receiver worry about the sound quality. Little by little, the powers that be were presenting yet another feature to entice the public into adapting CDs. Bonus tracks. Songs you could only get if you bought the CD version of the album. In some instances, a CD would contain multiple albums. CDs at the time could contain up to 74 minutes, and eventually they'd hold almost 80 minutes of content. I particularly remember my brother buying a Frank Zappa CD containing the Apostrophe and Overnight Sensation albums in their entirety. Being just a kid with a very limited amount of money, CDs just didn't appeal to me. For the price of a single CD, I could buy two tapes, or at least one tape, but with enough money left over to put aside and with just a buck or two, I could go out and get another. But then there was the day when, as a sophomore in high school in 1990, I was at the Fox Valley Mall in Aurora, Illinois. As I was wont to do, I checked out the record stores. At Record Town, a CD in particular caught my eye. In the Beatles section, there was a title on Polydor Records called The Early Tapes. Well, actually, that was the title on the spine. The full title as uh, displayed on the cover was The Early Tapes of the Beatles, The Beatles with Tony Sheridan, Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the title right there. Obviously, most Beatles fans know the significance of the Tony Sheridan tapes, but I'll try to give a brief explanation for my listeners who don't know the significance. Back when Pete Best was the Beatles drummer, the band had recorded seven tracks in 1961 and 1962, primarily to back up a British singer named Tony Sheridan. Two of the seven tracks, Ain't She Sweet and the group's own instrumental Cry for a Shadow, featured just the Beatles, but without Tony Sheridan. Oh, ain't she sweet, we'll see you walking down that street. Yes, I ask you very confidentially, ain't she 
the other five tracks, the Beatles were backing up Tony Sheridan, who also played guitar in those recordings. When those Tony Sheridan recordings were released on various labels, the credit was Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers. There wasn't really a single band called the Beat Brothers. It's just uh, simply any band that was backing up Tony Sheridan at the time, he would call them the Beat Brothers. So essentially, the Beatles were just session musicians. Those seven tunes I mentioned, they were recorded in a makeshift recording studio in a warehouse in Hamburg, Germany, and produced by Bert Kempfert, who himself had his own fame with an easy-listening instrumental called Wonderland by Night, which hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1960. When the Beatles hit it big in America in 1964, there were some American record labels who actually released those Tony Sheridan recordings that were originally credited to Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers. MGM Records and Atco Records come to mind as two of those labels who realized that they had this Tony Sheridan stuff that was actually backed up by the Beatles. So they rushed released what they had in their archives. As a result, My Bonnie, a rocked-up version of My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean, from those 1961 Tony Sheridan sessions, actually charted. It reached number 26 on the Billboard Hot 100 with The Saints, um, that is a rocked-up version of When the Saints Go Marching In, on the B-side. How many of your records are in the American Hip Parade at the moment? We've got six in the hundred, and uh, we, it's, we've got Wanna Hold Your Hand, She Loves You, Please Please Me, From Me To You, My Bonnie, which is a laugh, also, when the Beatles hit it big, Tony Sheridan went back into the studio and took his 1962 recording of Sweet Georgia Brown that he did with the Beatles and re-recorded the vocal with new lyrics that referenced the Beatles' fame. Just to give you an idea, here is the original 1962 recording. Since she came, I guess it's a shame now. Ma, she cooled down. Fellas, she ain't met. Oh, fellas, she can get. Georgia claimed her. Georgia named Here's the exact same part of the song, but with the 1964 vocal over it. Since she came, why, it's a shame how she brings him down. In Liverpool, she even dared to criticize the Beatles' hair. With their whole fan club standing there, I'll meet sweet George Brown. Right. Now, again, this stuff was recorded when Pete Best was the Beatles' drummer. And I have to talk about this, and I'll be as brief as I can being an obsessive Beatles fan. If I remember what Mark Lewison wrote in his still-in-progress three-part comprehensive Beatles biography correctly, the reason the Beatles hired Pete in the first place was that they were in desperate need of a drummer. And Pete's mom, Mona, ran the Casbah Club, a coffee house. And by hiring Pete, they'd get on Mona Best's good side and have a place to perform. The problem, though was that Pete was still kind of a newbie at drumming. The recordings with Tony Sheridan do reveal that he wasn't exactly an exciting drummer, at least back in 1961. In fact, during the session, Bert Kempfert wouldn't allow him to use his whole drum kit. To make the drumming job easier for Pete, his bass drum was actually taken away from the kit. In the United States, in 1964, some pressings of the Tony Sheridan material actually have a second drummer and an additional guitar player overdubbed to spice up the recordings a little bit. Who was that second drummer, though? It was likely Ace Session drummer Bernard Purdy, which in itself is its own story. Uh, here's 
that story in a nutshell. I hope it's a nutshell at least. Bernard Purdy claims that he played on 21 Beatles tracks in 1964 in an overdub session supervised by the Beatles manager Brian Epstein or Epstein. Uh, is, okay, here's the thing, folks. According to Martin Lewis, who is a Jewish-British person, he insists that the name is supposed to be pronounced Epstein, but people mispronounce it as Epstein. I don't know what the truth is. Brian isn't here anymore to tell us. So anyway, in that session allegedly supervised by Brian, Bernard Purdy was overdubbing drums because Ringo wasn't good enough. Purdy says that the tracks that he overdubbed drums on only appeared on American releases of the albums, not the original British ones. Of course, anybody who listens to Beatles songs on the American albums knows that there is zero difference performance-wise from those on the British releases. Purdy went so far as to claim that as he was in the studio, he saw a guitarist enter the room. When Purdy asked Epstein while... or Epstein? Let's not get into that mess again. Let's just say when Purdy said, hey, wh who's that other guitar player? He was allegedly told, don't worry about him, you just play your part. And for years, for decades, Bernard Purdy insisted that this story was true. But he refused to say which 21 tracks he overdubbed drums on unless somebody would offer him enough money to spill the beans. Well, when he was writing his autobiography a few years ago, he said that he was finally offered enough money and ergo would reveal what the tracks were in his autobiography. But you know what? He didn't. He still didn't. Most Beatles experts agree that if Bernard Purdy did overdub drums onto Beatles songs, they were the Tony Sheridan recordings, and in fact it's very likely that he actually did overdub those drums, given that the versions of the Tony Sheridan recordings that had the second drum tracks were released on an East Coast label, and Bernard Purdy's usual territory was the East Coast. How he got 21 tracks, though? Well... It could be that he did multiple takes of the songs that he overdubbed onto and counted those as 21 different recordings, I don't know. But just to give you an idea of what the overdubbed recordings sound like, here's a brief sample of Take Out Some Insurance, a cover of a Jimmy Reed song, recorded by Tony Sheridan with the Beatles backing him up. Here it is, only with Pete Best on drums. Take out some insurance on me, baby. Take out some insurance on me, baby Well, if you ever, ever say goodbye I'm gonna hold right over and die oh. Now, here's that same part, but with additional drums overdubbed and very likely played by Bernard Purdy. Take out some insurance on me, baby Take out some insurance on me, baby And of course, the American record companies that had these recordings tried to capitalize, often successfully, on these old pre-Ringo Beatles recordings. They were released on singles, on EPs, on albums. But given that you can't release an album of just seven songs, these albums were padded out by various additional recordings by Tony Sheridan and one or more other backing bands that he called the Beat Brothers. And these compilations appeared in record stores for decades. Such titles include The Beatles First, This Is The Savage Young Beatles, The Beatles With Tony Sheridan and Guests on MGM Records, which I have a copy of, by the way, a friend gave to me, 
in the beginning, circa 1960, even though their recordings are not from 1960. And of course, I mentioned in a bonus episode, the 1969 compilation from Canada called Very Together, which also attempted to capitalize on the Paul is Dead rumor by featuring a cover photo of four candles, one of which is snuffed out. That in the beginning compilation that I mentioned, that was in circulation for many, many years, but not so much the other ones, really. These compilations and the singles with the Tony Sheridan recordings are quite amusing to look at because they emphasize the Beatles and they de-emphasize Tony Sheridan. Like it'll say, the Beatles, in huge letters, and then in tiny letters it says, with Tony Sheridan. Well, the early tapes on CD was yet another one of those Tony Sheridan compilations. Even as a 15-year-old who was still a fairly new Beatles fan, I knew about the Tony Sheridan recordings and I found them fascinating. So I was happy that they were out there and available. And sure enough, here they were in compact disc. A compact disc that only costs $7. I'd be stupid not to buy this disc, right? Forget that I don't have a CD player. I'll just hold on to it for when I eventually do get one. My mother gave me a hard time for wasting my money. My dad asked me why I'd buy a CD without even having a CD player and how I expected to listen to it. I said, no problem, I'll just connect my boombox to Scott's CD player and just record it to tape and listen to the tape. Scott being my brother, of course, and my brother knew that I knew what I was doing, so he didn't mind me using his stuff when he wasn't home. So until I got a CD player for Christmas in 1990, I would listen to that tape copy of the early Beatles. Overall, I gotta say, I highly enjoyed that compilation. And probably the best thing about it was that it was easily the most comprehensive collection of the Tony Sheridan material ever released up to that date. The release date, according to Discogs.com, was December 10th, 1984, still a couple of years before EMI would release the Beatles' core catalog on CD. So for a while, if a Beatles fan wanted to hear the Beatles on CD, this early tapes CD was pretty much the only option. But regardless, it was a great way to hear the Beatles before Ringo. The entire CD is in stereo except for the first two tracks, Ain't She Sweet with John Lennon on lead vocal and the George Harrison John Lennon instrumental Cry for a Shadow. The third track is The Saints, the B-side of My Bonnie. But on this disc, it's listed by its full title of When the Saints Go Marching In, and it features Tony Sheridan on a solo vocal. It's quite obvious that he was trying to emulate Elvis Presley. Whether he was successful at it, well, it was a nice try. You know what? Here, you be the judge. Do you think he was a good Elvis here? Next up is a song called Why, sometimes called Why, and then in parentheses, Can't You Love Me Again. Uh, that parenthetical subtitle is put there undoubtedly so people wouldn't confuse the song with the Frankie Avalon song, Why. Sheridan actually co-wrote this one. The Beatles backed him up with some slightly doo-woppy vocals with George Harrison's voice coming over loud and clear. Next is my favorite of the Tony Sheridan recordings, a song listed as If You Love Me Baby, which is really Take Out Some Insurance. On other Tony Sheridan compilations, it's sometimes called Take Out Some Insurance On Me Baby, 
Of course, neither that nor If You Love Me Baby is the official registered title, but as kind of a side effect of those mistitlings, you can kind of tell that it's a different version of the song. If the album lists it as Take Out Some Insurance On Me Baby, it means that somebody edited out Tony Sheridan's use of the phrase God Damned, but if it's If You Love Me Baby, it's uncensored. Take out some insurance on me, baby. After that, we get to hear the first Tony Sheridan recording on the compilation without the Beatles, a surprisingly good cover of Ray Charles's What Did I Say? Next is the 1962 recording of Sweet Georgia Brown that uh, Tony Sheridan recorded with the Beatles, but with the 1964 vocals. In fact, for decades, you couldn't get the original unaltered 1962 version. Once again, you can hear George Harrison's voice ring out loud and clear among the Beatles' backing vocals. We go back to Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers for the next track, a cover of the Chris Montez song, Let's Dance, which, um, and I know this is sacrilege, but uh, I think is actually a much better version of the song. I'm, I'm sorry, folks, but Chris Montez delivered a terrible vocal on his version of the song, leaving some words literally incomplete. And the backing track is pretty awful, too. Uh, Chris Montez's songs later in the 60s were much better. But anyway, back to uh, this CD here. Uh, After Let's Dance, we have another track credited to Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers, a cover of Ruby Baby, something I literally just learned as I was prepping this episode, is that even though the group is credited as the Beat Brothers, it's actually the Starlighters, as in Joey D and the Starlighters. Uh, Without Joey D on this song, of course, uh, the Peppermint Twist people, uh, that's who the Beat Brothers are in this track. The next song is perhaps the most well-known of the Tony Sheridan Beatles recordings, My Bonnie. What was cool about the early tapes is that the version on this CD has a slow intro that I don't believe was present on any other release. My Bonnie lies over the ocean. And there also exists a version in which the intro is actually sung in German, but it's not on this CD. After My Bonnie is the last song on the CD that features the Beatles, a cover of Nobody's Child, and uh, it's easily the most unexciting of the seven Beatles recordings on the disc. It has a sparse and, uh, well, not very well done drum part from Pete Best, and with Sheridan pretty much howling the chorus. The remaining three tracks don't have the Beatles at all. There's a pretty mediocre version of Ready Teddy, a song that John Lennon would remake in the 70s, and a live performance of Ya Ya. Interestingly, the exact same crowd noise is at the end of both the main part of the song and the reprise. I actually loaded up the track in Audacity and was able to match the two parts up exactly. And I could swear I hear someone yelling for Freebird a good 11 years before the song actually existed, but hey, call me crazy. The CD closes out with a eh, pretty unexciting version of Kansas City that I don't think was ever released before, at least not on any compilation that included Beatles-backed Tony Sheridan recordings. Now, this is the version of Kansas City that Wilbert Harrison took to number one, not the Little Richard version that included the Hey, 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 Hey lyrics. For some reason, the writing credit is Hank Ballard instead of Lieber and Stoller. The backup band that was rechristened the Beat Brothers on this track was the Bobby Patrick Six, 
also known as the Big Six 1964, who would uh, back up Tony Sheridan on most of his recordings between 1963 and 1967. So that's the early tapes, and that was the most comprehensive collection of the Beatles' Hamburg recordings for Polydor until 2001, when the Bear Family label released a two-CD compilation called The Beatle Bop, Hamburg Days. Uh, Beatle Bop, by the way, being the original title of Cry for a Shadow. This set included a book telling the story behind the sessions, and on the CDs were all the known versions of all seven songs the Beatles recorded for Polydor edited versions that were used in promotional medleys, the 1962 and 1964 versions of Sweet Georgia Brown, the different versions of Take Out Some Insurance, My Bonnie with and without the various intros, recordings with and without the additional drum and guitar overdubs, you name it. It also included a version of Swanee River that Tony Sheridan did with one of the incarnations of the Beat Brothers, but only because it's believed that he also did a version with the Beatles at one point, but that version was lost along with the original session tapes of the other songs in a fire, unfortunately. The Beat Brothers version was included as an indication of what the version with the Beatles likely had sounded like, even though I bought Beatle Bop almost immediately after it was released. I kept the early tapes. I could not part with the first CD that I ever bought. Nowadays, people don't buy CDs as much as they used to. They prefer to download or even stream their music, unfortunately. Many argue that CDs aren't quite as strong as we were led to believe, that they skip just like records or suffer what's known as bit rot, meaning that the playing surface itself is damaged, rendering the zeros and ones burned into it unreadable or untranslatable, usually the result of a manufacturing defect. With that in mind, just recently I pulled out my CD of the early tapes and listened to it from start to finish. Thirty years later, it still plays through like a champ. No skipping, no backtracking, no clicks, just straight-ahead music. Which tells me that if you take proper care of your CDs, they will last a really long time. And as I listened to the early tapes, it occurred to me that Pete Best wasn't necessarily a bad drummer, so much as he was an unexciting drummer. Things may have changed over the last <laughs> nearly 60 years since those recordings were made, and judging by videos I watched on YouTube, he really did become a pretty good drummer. But he wasn't right for the Beatles. He didn't hang out with the guys and have a drink with them after gigs. He allegedly missed a lot of gigs, too, and his natural pompadour hair made it impossible for him to adapt the famous exy hairstyle the others had. Without Beatle hair... You can't be a beetle. By the way, I did get to witness Bernard Purdy as a drummer before, and he is an excellent drummer, so credit where credit is due. Uh, he was the drummer for the Broadway revival of Hair back in 2009. He seriously kicked major butt with uh, those drums. Uh, in fact, I think maybe next episode of uh, this podcast, I'll talk about um, the musical hair, because uh, I'm kind of into that show, and I just want to explain my background, how it kind of became part of my autobiography. If you'd like to share perhaps what your first CD was, or you have any other comments on this or previous episodes or suggestions for upcoming episodes, reach out to me. My email address is autobio at schnookpodcast.com. And schnookpodcast is my 
handle on the social media, specifically Instagram and Twitter. And if you go to facebook.com slash schnookpodcast, you'll get the Facebook page. There was some copyrighted music in this episode, and that music was there not to infringe on the copyright holders, but to use for commentary and explanation. The legal rights, of course, remain with those copyright holders. Also, if you think you have a story of what it's like just to be a regular everyday schnook and you'd like to tell it, hey, I'd love to have a guest storyteller now and then, so feel free to reach out to me. Thank you all for listening, and I thank my wife Lisa for her unending support, and in this case, for her participation in the podcast. And I guess it just shows that the good goes around, right? And please help this good to go around by staying safe and keep others safe and treat others the way they want to be treated. All the best, my friends. See, that's why I script things except for this, but... Um... Hey, I said, do you want a script? And you're like, eh. Yeah, and I'm still... Eh.